Safety Third is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. What is the weirdest thing that ever happened to you when you were partying? Okay, so (laughs) how about this? The first time I ever uh, smoked weed when I was a teenager, I had this like strange sexual response to cooking ramen. What? (laughs) I know. Like I I knew it was weird at the time, but I was like, oh, whatever. Let's just go with this. Okay, so that that was smoking weed. Yeah, that was smoking. Weed. Uh, what happened with your first beer? It's really it's kind of hard to explain, but basically, I felt like calm and warm, uh, and like everything was okay. Like I'd never felt like that before, and it stands out because of that. You know, like I was a, a very emotional kid um, and pretty anxious. You know, like I had like you know, OCD and like they put me on Zoloft for, you know, depression as, as like a little kid. Um, and then just like booze, like it, like when I, when I tried a beer, it was like, Oh, it like took care of all those things. And then slowly, but surely like other drugs came into the picture and they took care of it even better. (laughs) It was like, Oh, this is great. Um, you know, what I was really like running from or seeking some type of like, um, like warm blanket and like some comfort from was the, um, sexual abuse from my, my childhood. Yeah. Like that event, um, m- made me feel for like my whole life. Like I was, uh, separate, a, a part of, instead of like, I don't that event just, it made me feel separate and gross and different and dirty and unclean and used. And like, it just, it just like, I didn't have any like peace, you know? Um, and the booze and the drugs were like great for that. They gave me tons of peace, you know? And it also gave me like this kind of like, uh, identity, you know, especially in college. Like it, I was like party patty, you know, like that, that was my, that was my thing. And I ultimately, I felt like, okay, I felt okay. You you mentioned sexual abuse and from what I understand is that you we're going to leave it at that for now, right? Yeah, you know, um ah, fuck. Mm. It's okay. You know, I uh <clears throat> So I don't like talking about it, Um, you know, because that's what like sticks out in my mind is like this feeling of like, I have this, I don't even know if it's real, you know, Uh, like I have this vision in my head of like looking towards my, the front door of my house and like wanting somebody to come out and like come get me. Ugh, fucker. I know that, you know, I know that I have to talk about it because I don't like talking about it because I lived with it, like, as this, like, it was like this rock that I carried on my shoulders for fucking ever. And um, the more I talk about it, um, I think the the shame of it goes away, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't want my life to be, like, steered around by this thing anymore. Um, men don't talk about sexual abuse. Uh, I think that, I mean, people don't talk about sexual abuse 
and uh, it it is this heavy, terrible, brutal thing, um, and I want to talk about it because of that, you know. Yeah. And it's helping, and it's ultimately, I mean, it's helping me. One thing that I I think it's it's really interesting to hear you talk about is um, how you talk about how like you you were born an addict. Well, you know, like. The disease of alcoholism and addiction is like this really weird thing. Like there's no like point. Like I, the trauma I experienced in my youth didn't make me, uh, you know, didn't make me an alcoholic or an addict. It sure didn't help. Like ultimately what it was, was like, it was always a search for this outward, uh, force to cure this internal conflict. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. I was just motivated by feeling like I'm a slave to sensation, both good and bad. You know, I run from it and I run toward it. And that's, that's the motivation of an alcoholic and an addict, you know? And today I'm so far away from, from those feelings. You know, it's a, it's a miracle. It's a true fucking miracle. Yeah. So you also had a milestone. I did. Mm -hmm. On May 19th of 2018, I turned 34 years old on the exact same day that I celebrated five years in recovery. Um, That's awesome. Thank you very much. It felt great. It feels great. Um, This is always like a very emotional time of year for me because there are these specific dates that lead up to May 19th where it's like this thing happened and then this thing happened. You know, these like disastrous things during the last year of my use. And so I'm able, like, each year to kind of stand on that date and look back and look how far I've come, you know, with the help of, like, so many people. You know, like, life and recovery are team sports. And I have a huge team. And the crazy, the crazy thing about addiction is that, like, it makes you believe that you are terminally unique, that you are alone in this thing, and that nobody has ever had the the hand that you've been dealt in life and that it ultimately this thing is going to kill you. You kind of know it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't go through life thinking like that anymore. I'm a part of a big team. You know, I mean, I get like, I'm an emotional person and the shit that I love, I love the shit out of it. And I express it a lot because I wasn't able to do that before I was hidden before. And now I'm not, you know, that's why I love making you super uncomfortable and telling you how much I love you and appreciate you as a friend. (laughs) You know, your your perverse joy at making me uncomfortable is not healthy, by the way. I'm going to call you out on that. Yeah, um, and that's also why you love this episode so much. I do. That is why I love this episode so much. Because we get to talk about um, something that I don't think that, that we get to focus on a lot when when we, as, a, uh, as the human race, talk about alcoholism and addiction. Um, we get to talk about the struggle and the darkness of it. But in this episode, we're going to also talk about the hope of it and the turn when hope starts to come in. Um, You know, and it did for me. And I'm so excited about today's show and to share this with you guys. Today, we're going to talk to my friend, Stacy Bear. Stacy is the National Director of Programming and Operations of The Phoenix. It's an organization that provides a sober support community to people in recovery. And Stacy and I have a lot of similarities. We're both larger than normal humans, 
We both found a home in the outdoor world and in partying. We both almost lost the battle against addiction. And we both returned to the mountains to reclaim them and ourselves from the disease. And Stacy's experience gave him an idea about the outdoors that I've been wrestling with for years. I believe the culture that surrounds the outdoors can just as nearly kill us as it can heal us. This isn't something Stacy read about. He's lived this. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. I got home from Iraq almost 11 years ago now. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a veteran. I, I knew that was a technical term, but that I was technically a veteran, but I, I didn't want to be a veteran, right? And in my mind, even though my grandpa, who had served before me, was a veteran and was one of the main reasons I wanted to join the military, I also then, when I got out of the military on the other side, didn't want to be like my grandpa. I didn't want to wear a funny hat. I didn't want to play bingo. I didn't want to go into a smoke-filled little room once a week um, and hang out with old men who smelled kind of like formaldehyde. You know, I felt like uh, my time at war, I had really missed out on life, and I wanted to live life to the fullest. Stacy was 17 when he received an ROTC scholarship. When he graduated from Ole Miss in 2000, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant, and he served until 2004. Then, in 2006, he was recalled out of the Individual Ready Reserve, and he spent 16 more months in service. Stacy's last 12 months of service were in Iraq, and when he came home, like many veterans, he struggled to adjust. When you go and you deploy and you go to war, you grow. I mean, the human experience is intensified and magnified, right? And, and this, for a lot of people, in this really intense way. And so that pushes you further along. And so on some levels of humanity, you mature faster. But in other levels, you don't have the same experience that other 20 or 30 somethings or, or late teenagers would have. Right. Yeah. And so you miss out on some of the skills and some of the ideas that might've been helpful right. to help you cope with those other things that you've seen or done. Right. And then two weeks after your last patrol in Iraq, where you're trying to help remove gauze from a girl whose body was covered about 90% in burns and we're there trying to scrub the necrotizing skin, right? Clean the necrotizing skin off of her body and convince her parents and her uncles and aunts that we are trying to help her while she is screaming and there's new blood flowing. And then, and then you're standing in a grocery store staring at 16 different type, types of marshmallow starred cereal and 15 different types of toothpaste. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah. But I mean, there's also other things around trauma, right? And um, the challenges of coming out of any institutionalized system like the military or war and then being put back in a broad society and being told that you have to make decisions now. Um, and that's the good and the bad, right, of, of living outside of an institutionalized life is you get to make the decisions. And there's nobody necessarily telling you what your left or right limits are. But Stacy struggled to adjust to civilian life for another reason, too. Stacy loved to do what he describes as going big. Stacy has been a large human since he was a small large human. 
Today, he's 6'7", 230 to 240 solid pounds. And when you grow up as the big kid in eastern South Dakota and as a gigantic rugby-playing college beast, big is not just your stature. It's your personality. So going big meant, you know, pushing myself physically in the military, pushing myself on the rugby pitch, and then pushing myself when it came time to, uh, <laughs> for the after party. Because I'd always had a big appetite for fun and a big appetite for, you know, going big in, in whatever way I could go big. But when I got to college and I, the first night that I, I remember sinking my first beer and it felt so illicit and that I was getting away with something because I was under 21 and, um, and then I was able to get beer at the bar. And that night ended with me running around naked in a Walmart in Oxford, Mississippi. And I think I stole a carpet and rolled up into it and then rolled around underneath a parked semi-truck and passed out. Stacy's bigger is better approach to life became his coping mechanism after Iraq. To be clear, the army didn't make Stacy an alcoholic. He was born with the disease. And when your approach to life is to hunt out explosive experiences, it can lead you to dangerous situations. I wanted to pack as much experience as I could into the immediate moment. And I think that's really what kind of drove, you know, what ultimately I realized was a cocaine addiction and alcoholism. It felt great, right? And, and um, it was fun and you're the life of the party and you could bring people in and you could spin people out and you could spin around and... Um, one of my big party tricks was just to get naked and run around. Right. Which led... That's talent right there. That, that is talent, which led to uh, my, my last couple of years of uh, heavy cocaine use. My favorite party trick was eight ball on a wall, which is pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. yeah. Do the eight ball run through the wall. Yeah. I never knew what it was like to leave a bar before closing time. Right? Like I... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thought that I was... In my mind, I was super helpful to a lot of people at the bar because I was always happy to help clean up at the end of the night, right? Like, if you'll give me one more bottle of that, I'll clean everything for you. Oh, yeah. I did the exact same thing. I would flip chairs. Totally. Yeah. And I, I, that, yeah, I've cleaned a lot of bars, scrubbed a lot. I'm like, oh, man, I guess I'll go take care of all the blood and vomit in the bathroom. That I did. Because (laughs) half the time it was, yeah, that that I did. That came from my body. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because you, you pass over the abyss a lot when you're partying at the levels that you and I were partying at yeah. and when you're going as big as you're going. But at the same time, I don't know if I would have made it sometimes had I not been using and drinking heavily. Right. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. Like I look back on it and I was on a Ferrari that was on fire and was like packed full of garden fertilizer and it could blow up at any moment. But it was moving me from point A to point B. Right. And I'm thankful that along the way, I don't think I physically hurt anybody too bad. There is a New York Rangers fan out there I should probably apologize to. <laughs> okay. So, Elizabeth, let me explain what Stacy is talking about here. This idea that booze and drugs helped him make it sometimes. I know this doesn't make any sense or, or no sense at all because... Well, alcoholism and addiction, they just don't make sense. They're just big balls of irrationality and and pain. So the booze and the drugs give these small moments of relief from the pain or the trauma or the shame that you're dealing with. So 
the booze and the drugs are kind of like the medicine? Yes. Yeah, exactly. But that's the irrational part, right? So for Stacy, for me, there were these things acting like these invisible rudders in our lives, right? Uh, the feeling of not being okay, the, the trauma we were dealing with, it feels like it's going to consume you. So the booze and the drugs actually save you from blowing your fucking head off. But it's a stopgap. It's, it's just a short-term fix. So Stacey started to understand this, and that's when he called his friend Chuck. After the break, how Chuck helped Stacy find a new rudder in his life. So Chuck, Chuck was uh, Chuck was retired military. Uh, he was a retired special forces uh, non commissioned officer, and uh, we worked together in Baghdad. And when I got home from Iraq and ended up a couple of years after being home in Boulder, Colorado, he was in Colorado Springs, and uh, we would have lots of awkward phone calls about where I would tell him how depressed and angry I was, and that I wanted to kill myself or join the military. And one day he. Uh, told me I needed to do something about it. And I said, what? And he said, I don't know. Maybe you should try climbing. And I wanted to use my height as an excuse, but I really couldn't because it was Chuck and he's as tall as I am and uh, as lanky as I am. And um, he said, find some shoes and a harness and told me what to get. And I thought, well, I might as well not, you know, I can always commit suicide next Tuesday. Um, I might as well go climbing with Chuck. And uh, I don't think the conversation we had would be recommended by anybody in the uh, clinical counseling or psychology <laughs> field. We went to the first flat iron, which is not, you know, it's not like a super difficult climb, although it is slabby at the start. And for a big man on slab, that's always a little frightening. But, um, yeah, we got up there and um, we hiked up and um, we just, he cruised up and then, you know, I battled my way up on the rope and I remember yelling falling before I was even falling, if I even fell at all. You know, I was just so nervous and so afraid. And I also wanted to save face, right? I didn't want to look like an asshole. Right. And um, Do you have that, that thing where you challenge. try something new as a big guy and you're just like, I need to be good at this? right off the bat, right from the jump. I need to be good at this. And if you're not, you're like, well, fuck this thing. Fuck. Right. And I still have this thing where I'm like constantly apologizing to people. And then, and then I'm like upset with myself. You know, I'm like, you don't need to apologize. You're new at this. It's okay. And then you're like, oh, but I'm so sorry. I'm slow. I'm sorry. You know, I, and you're like trying to find all the excuse. Oh, if I, if I would have done this or, or when people like try and right. give you your advice and you're like, yeah, yeah, no, I got it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Got it. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so I, I definitely have that. But, in, and it's kind of the same thing, right? Like, I mean, we have that, whether you're a big guy or not. I mean, we have the same thing. Like, I, I think most people have that, like, oh, do you need some help? Nope, I'm good. I got it. And uh, we just, we don't live in a culture yet where it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to seek help and it's okay to, um, 
it's okay to fall, right? And um, you, you need to learn to distinguish between failing and falling. Mm. And I think that's what Chuck was helping me figure out on the wall. And it helped me realize that there was more to life than fear and guilt and that I had to move forward with that. So that climb happened in September of 2009. And I I don't think Chuck realized he was going to introduce me to the next addiction, as it were, for climbing. Over the next two years, Stacy became a real deal mountain dude. He kept climbing, he tried ice climbing, he started snowboarding and then skiing, and he even dipped his toes into mountaineering. In 2010, Stacy launched Veteran Expeditions. It's a nonprofit that gets vets outside. I wanted to bring as many service members and veterans into that as I knew. I want everybody to experience climbing because I know how magical it can be. But addiction still had its claws in Stacy. And as much as he loved the positive impact of the outdoors, what he truly fell in love with was the celebratory party culture that persists within our community. The thing is, in Boulder, it was really easy to, to drink all day and party all night, and nobody ever really realized that you had a problem because, A, you shifted the community that you were partying with so much, right? Like, you go to the local brewery at noon with your work colleagues or somebody from across town, and then you have a happy hour where you meet some other folks and then you move on to the front porch and then you go back out to the bars and then there's a different after party. And then in the morning, everybody's waking up to go climb or to go ski or to go hike some big 14er. So you just laugh about it and keep going. Right. And then, you know, somebody's hiked a six pack of your favorite local brewery to the top of the mountain and, and you wake up and you feel like shit. And you've got another day in the mountains in front of you, which you're super stoked on. And you're going to try a new climb. You're going to try a new lead. You've got, you know, you've been eyeing something down the mountain and you heard the snow conditions are great. And somebody told you that it was okay. And you're tired and you're fucked. So what do you do? You like, hey man, like a little bit of day drinking, but it's the weekend. So day drinking is okay on the weekend and maybe a little bump to get you going. In 2011, Stacy got a job with the Sierra Club, and he moved across the country to work out of their Washington, D.C. office. That's when things came to a head. When I was in D.C., which is uh, probably the drunkest, most drugged out town I've ever been to, I had that same tradition of substance use, but all of a sudden there was nothing to mask it with. Yeah. Right? You wake up on a Tuesday morning in Washington, D.C., and... You're in Washington, D.C. Right. So, I mean, maybe you can go run around the mall. But um, I hate running. The Army killed that for me. You know, and, and that's when I think I really realized, like, wow, you know. And, and I was really lucky. There was actually a woman in a meeting who cleared out the meeting. And uh, it was, I was in D.C. and I had been out the night before and I had been drinking heavily. Right. And um, put on a suit to go to work. And I had a few hours of sleep. And I, when I woke up, I was like, all right, I know I'm still drunk. If I just shower, I'm not going to be drunk anymore. All right, I'm just going to drink some coffee. And I had, a, and it was a mile walk from my place to the metro station, which took me downtown. And by the time I got to that meeting, Patty, I had sweat through my tie. Wow. And my suit. Wow. Like, that, and like, there's a part of me, like, looking back on it, that's kind of impressive. <laughs> like, that's a lot of, that's I mean, a lot of sweat. That is, yeah. So, and um, the woman took me aside and 
she cleared out the room and she said, look, you've got a great opportunity in front of you with what you're doing here at the Sierra Club. And you need to figure out how you're going to take advantage of it. And if you need help, you can ask. Mm -hmm. But you need to figure out what you want to do. So I walked out of that meeting and I called my buddy Ted Church. And I said, Ted, I think I have to quit drinking. I'm scared. What do I do? And Ted said, don't worry about it, man. It's no big deal. Just uh, try not to have a drink today. And um, call me this afternoon, you know, and reach out if you need anything in between. And let's just check in this evening. And I called him back and he said, how are you doing? And I said, I made it. And he's like, you think you can make it till tomorrow morning? And I said, sure. And um, Ted's support and a lot of other people's support through that time was great. And Ted and I kind of came up with a plan and... The day that I really made the decision to, to give up drinking was Memorial Day 2011. Checking in with Ted and other friends helped Stacy start down the path of recovery. He knew he had to make a change. Those hours he'd typically be at the bar were replaced with long walks in Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. And he started to climb sober. Stacy points to his adventures outside early on in his recovery as helping him keep sober. And it was about this time that he made an observation. The outdoor community was a double-edged sword. On one hand, time outdoors was an important part of Stacy's recovery from the emotional scars of Iraq. I escaped from my own personal hell for a long time in the outdoors. For me, the mountains have been this incredibly healing place. But as you get involved in the mountains and, and you get involved in the culture and the community, if you're paying attention, you realize that the mountains for a lot of people can ultimately be a destroyer of their lives. Right. I, when I say the mountains, I mean the outdoors broadly. Stacy says the culture of the outdoor community has the potential to go in an unhealthy direction. First, there's the emphasis on sending it, on being rad all the time. Part of the outdoor community isn't willing to be humble in the mountains. And I think that's the attitude that can get us into a lot of trouble. I mean, we as a culture really celebrate the radness, right? I right. mean, that's why you have certain, you know, Sunday, 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 Trachosaurus is coming to the Coliseum. $25 buys you the whole seat, but you only need the edge. There's a lot of people who maybe don't see that. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's still a lot of people who are out there who are pushing themselves to push themselves and they're chasing the sponsorship dollars. Yeah. And they're trying to fit in and they're trying to be the coolest and they're trying to be, you know, the biggest, baddest asshole that's out there. And those two things can, can create a really toxic mix and i think when we look at you know what's the future of our sport and i'm not trying to be a buzzkill like if you want to throw down and have a good time great but yeah just try and think about what 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 is that what, how is that serving you right you know how how is that feeding you right and if it isn't feeding you and if it's leading to negative decisions or you're feeling like shit or you know try and realize like am i using this only to escape and according to Stacy, one of the aspects of outdoor culture that has the biggest potential to go wrong 
is the drinking culture. Assuming that there's got to be alcohol involved with everything. And, uh, and I also hear it from a lot of athletes, you know, like my athlete manager, you know, poured beer on my head or I'm worried to tell my, you know, sponsors that I don't drink because I'll lose sponsorship. Yeah. And I mean, that is some horseshit of the highest and deepest level. If you want to have beer and you want to have whiskey and everything else like that, lots of people can have long-term healthy relationships with alcohol. But don't let that be the reason people are getting together to celebrate. Stacy says it's a balancing act of loving the outdoors and embracing your achievements, but you need to stop before you take it too far. I mean, I, I get it. I get why people are, are bums. I get why people are ski bums and climbing bums. And I think we throw around those terms really loosely. Yeah. But I think when people cross that bridge and go so focused into the mountains, and then all of a sudden they, they can't continue to maintain that focus, and they haven't stopped or paused or breathed and reflected, that's where I think we as a community, we need to be more open about that conversation, and we need to help people back. And I think that's, that's where you know the community saves us, when uh, the outdoors save us, when we find some semblance of balance between savoring and just living life. Yeah. And I think it, I think it can kill us when we just focus on the savoring and rather than savoring it, you know, it's like when I see chocolate cake now, I definitely do not savor the chocolate cake. I just want it in my body as fast as I can <laughs> jam it into my little mouth. Into your mouth hole. Right. Past your beard and mustache into your mouth. Right. Yeah, I get that. And if I'm lucky, there'll be little crumbs of cake that I will taste all throughout the rest of the day from my beard. Yeah. And I think it's kind of the same thing in the outdoors, right? There's a time and a place, but if we're always just, if we're just shoving the experience into our pie hole as fast as we possibly can, then there's some real possibility of pain and frustration and anger. And, um, but if we stop and we pause and we breathe and we reflect on how lucky we are to have the metaphorical chocolate cake of the outdoors with us, then it can really be that incredible catalyst for our growth. But it's not easy. Yeah. You know, it'd be really interesting if me 11 years ago or even six years ago when I first started skiing or nine years ago when I first started climbing could listen to this conversation because I don't know how receptive I'd be to it. I might say, oh, that's bullshit. You're just weak, pussy. Yeah. yeah. Have a beer. Drop that line. Cornus looks fine. Um, and so maybe there's just something where we're just going to be young and dumb. But I'd like to think we can help interrupt that behavior and i want to i want to try and change that because i think there's an incredible amount of potential in everybody and there's an incredible amount of potential in people who do go to the mountains whether it's to escape to celebrate to do whatever and then if we can harness a little bit of that potential and find a way to bring that back into society as as a whole we're going to be a much healthier happier society that's going to be a lot kinder and it's going to create space for all people to try and explore their own potential and that's what i think that's what that's the best case of what the mountains can do for us you've been listening to safety third a production of duct tape then beer stacy bear was our guest today stacy thank you so much i love you if you guys want to find out more about what Stacy is doing, head over to thephoenix.org. Like what you heard here? Well, rate us on iTunes and spread the word, friend. Safety Third is a party, and all parties are better with more people.
If you want to see pictures from our interviewees, follow us on Instagram at safety third underscore podcast. You can leave comments, questions, or suggest a guest on our website, safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Alex Park edited this episode. Additional production help from Parker Cross. Music by my brother, Brendan, Mr. Fuzzy Face O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, pals. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, Safety Third.